0: I'll make my, the formal introduction that I would make in the country I grew up in. My name is Jarrett Wood Henry Richardson III, M.D., FACP, FAPM, F.C.P.C. That's Nigerian introductions. I'm a grown-up M.K., born and raised in Nigeria. My mom was a pediatrician, my dad a minister. Um, I grew up sort of in a hospital, things that would make uh, pharmacists uh, terrified, you know, six-year-olds counts, counting pills in the pharmacy. Uh, I was pretty good at it. You kind of get pretty good at that. Um, from that background, I came to the states, finished high school after boarding school, which was not a good experience for me. Um, high school was a better experience. You can tell how old I am because I'm one of I'm one of the generation where. Um, Blue jeans that look like they're old really are old. I finished college in Birmingham, Alabama at Sanford University. Went to medical school in Baltimore. Uh, Never conceived of being a psychiatrist when I was in medical school because the place I went, Johns Hopkins, most of the, as we call them, shrinks, were weird. (laughs) And I did not have a role model to identify with. I went, I'd, so I did internal medicine, went to Mayo in Rochester, finished internal medicine, and realized at the end of internal medicine that I was really getting tired of, you know, competing genomycin levels. That's how old I am. Genomycin was our big drug. Uh, you know, calculating those levels, spending about three minutes with patients, and decided, uh, somewhat forced against my will, to do a psych rotation. And I fell in love with psychiatry. You get paid to sit there and get to know people really well. Um, And you obviously incorporate, you never take your medical hat off in psychiatry. So eventually after, um, you know, getting boarded and thinking I was going to be one of the really smart people who did both internal medicine and psychiatry, I said, no, I'm not that smart. So I chose psychiatry and have loved it ever since. Um, I've been involved in mostly teaching overseas. I went back, as I'll tell you in a minute, to work in the hospital where I was born while my mom was still there and the woman who delivered me was still there. It was one of those kind of weird experiences, but a great experience. Uh, and it was there that I'm, that's where I'm going to start to talk about this topic. This is what we're going to cover. Uh, I'm going to Um, make myself stop at 9.30 so that there's plenty of time for interaction and discussion because I have no idea what you're really interested in. I can tell you that yesterday my friend uh, Ken Gamble said that I was going to talk about managing anxiety and depression among missionaries, and that was the first time I heard about the fact that I was going to talk about that. But we can talk about that later because that's something that I do as well. But the focus on this is managing anxiety and depression in resource-limited populations. In 1978, after uh, finishing training with, you know, still green, I went back to Nigeria and took over the teaching medical service at the Baptist Medical Center in Ogwomashaw, where I was born. I had two housemen. We had about 60 patients. We rounded on in the morning. Sometimes for fun, I would make rounds with John Tarpley, who was a surgeon who tried to make a surgeon out of me and didn't succeed. Uh, but we would enjoy teaching each other and seeing each other patients. Then we would go to the outpatient clinic, and between me and one or two housemen, we would see two to three hundred patients in a day. Um, you can guess the quality of that. It's diagnosis by chief complaint, and the amazing thing is, much of the time, it actually works. Uh, headache and fever, malaria. You know, stomach pain and anemia, parasites, weakness and tiredness, hypertension or diabetes. The thing that I started noticing is that every week there were some people who'd been here last week with exactly the same complaints. And I was pretty sure that we had taken care of their parasites last week and pretty sure I had taken care of the other people's malaria. And I started thinking, uh, what are we missing here? I'm a terrible doctor. I can't get these people any better. And it's a fairly simple thing to do with these basic diagnoses. Then I started putting back my mental health hat on and thinking, well, maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. There happened to be a houseman, a trainee, who was really interested in this. So we set up a separate afternoon clinic for people who were repeaters in the medical clinic. And sure enough, when you start digging down, a significant percentage of those people had mental health issues that were what was bringing them back to the outpatient medical clinic over and over And, of course, the most common problems were anxiety and depression. Uh, In the middle of the battles, it's easy to overlook that, but think about all the resources that are spent on trying to treat these people medically when actually we're missing the boat in terms of what they need. Um, I learned a lot of new syndromes when I was in Nigeria then. I've been back a few times, but I learned the most in that six months Uh, There's a a thing called a brain fag syndrome. It's a culture-bound syndrome, which is a good example of things that those of you that end up doing medicine cross-culturally would need to get sensitive to because every culture has its own culture-bound syndromes, including our North American culture. It used to be a common term for mental exhaustion, but now is almost exclusively used in West Africa mainly in male students who are about to take the biggest exam of their lives, which is the British system. Uh, And the manifestations were vague somatic symptoms, depression, difficulty concentrating, very similar to other syndromes found in other places. The presentations in that culture, and wherever you work, you'll have to identify the presentations in the culture you work in, or burning in the head, weak, dizzy, can't sleep or think, crawling skin, the exam syndrome. Presentations of depression were stomach ache, too tired, very sick was the term, bad dreams, can't eat. No one uses the term depression in most cultures. It's not a term that people tend to draw on. So you're going to have to pay attention to what actually people present with. In Nigeria, depression is highly somatized. And in many cultures, because the, the concept of depression that we have in the Western world doesn't fit, there are many other ways that people will bring their distress to you. In Nigeria, often it's heat heaviness, emptiness, skin crawling, a variety of other things. The things that are cross-culturally universal, based on good cross-cultural studies, WHO, and other resources, are impaired concentration, anhedonia, you can't get pleasure out of it normally pleasurably things, Uh, being negative toward oneself, having a down mood or being irritable, disturbed sleep, psychomotor slowing, and suicidal thinking. Those in every culture that's been studied are present in people who are experiencing what we in the West call major depression or significant depression. So no matter where you go, The somatization may be your entry to where people actually come see you and be examined, but these are the symptoms that, that you can pay attention to to know, do I need more intervention here? Now, I've just given you the scenario for traditional medical missions. The vast majority of you, if you end up doing medical missions, aren't going to do that kind of mission. The greatest need for medical mission is going to be urban and not bush medicine. Uh, most of the people in the world live in cities. Most of you will be working in a secular environment as a tent maker. So most of you need to know urban cross-cultural syndromes, and they're very specific and unique to almost every different urban area there is. In China, um, when we do our Christian Medical and Dental Association, CME, in Thailand, I usually give a talk on depression, and so I review the literature for the last two years on what's been published about depression and anxiety and the East Asia uh, there's a huge literature and there's a huge very helpful literature and one of the clues one of the recommendations I make to you if you're going to practice general medicine and not ignore these problems is wherever you go look at the literature in peer review journal there's a huge literature in peer reviewed journal in most countries surprisingly even those where you wouldn't guess that there would be some And you can learn a lot about how to bring what you know from your training here into that culture to address these things. Now, in terms of the details of management, I'm not going to do that today. I will will talk about some clues and some ways to go about learning how to do what you need to where you're going to be working. But Google, or whatever your search engine is, can find excellent resources, if you Google WHO mental health atlas 2011, it will be the beginning of, of you finding out that WHO has a huge emphasis on mental health at this particular time. They have an atlas, which which uh, summarizes the problems and essentially every country that's been willing to participate. There's a WHO mind section, which really helps understand and has links, as you do on the web, which you're lucky to have, to find something that's particular to your area. And then there's a thing called Mental Health Gap, in which they have actually put together a treatment manuals for many different cultures. So you don't have to hear that here because it's better if you go and find it yourself. But the other, um, basically, if you want one good, clear, uh, take-home site to go to for a great summary of psychiatric diagnosis and treatment. You may have your favorite from your school. The one that i found that's the clearest and best done is the one for Virginia Commonwealth University. And If you go to the VCU website, you will find excellent, detailed, step-by-step diagnostic and treatment. So I'm not going to go down those roads today, uh, which I think probably relieves most of you. Why are we talking about this? Well, uh, anxiety disorders are the most common mental disorders that people uh, experience. Now, we usually say it's depression, but it turns out if you study it and look for it, it's really anxiety. The lifetime prevalence for any anxiety disorder, I'm not sure how to get this thing to stop doing that. Um, Maybe move it down a little bit. Maybe that will help. I don't know. Maybe it's feedback in any case, um, lifetime prevalence is about a quarter of the people uh, that doesn 't seem like a lot when you look at numbers, but if you think about this room, um, this number of people will have been have experienced anxiety or major depression in their lifetime that 's a substantial chunk of people that 's not that 's not uh, that doesn't include all the reactive, short-term bereavement, situational things. That's major significant anxiety. Depression, mood disorders of unipolar, bipolar type, again, lifetime is 20 to 30%. So any one of us, if we have five of us, one of us is going to have had a major struggle with this during our lifetime. Not a little bit, but a major one. And again, the differential diagnosis is pretty familiar to you. What's happening in the rest of the world with this? This isn't really a North, northern culture phenomenon. It turns out that every culture that's been studied has major issues with anxiety and depression. And you can see between 1990 and 2010 that depression... Is or 2020 is expected to rise to number two burden of disease in the world. Now, how can that be with all HIV and malaria and etc? It's simply a fact. It's a fact that if you burden of disease is is what weight in terms of taking somebody out of work, out of school, cost to themselves and their family. That is what is the price. Depression is number two by 2020, nine years from now. So if you don't know how to help people with this and you go to almost anywhere, you're missing the number two burden of disease in the world, not just the, quote, developed world. Now, um, a few key issues from the WHO, and then I'll get back to uh, what I think are key things in management. The resources are insufficient. You can find this online. Half the world population lives in a country where on average is one psychiatrist. For 200,000 people, some people think that's a good thing. Um, the fact is, most mental health care is delivered by primary care physicians, and you're the ones—if that, if that's you—that need to get really expert at that, because we're the—you know—you can refer the the more difficult patients to manage to us, but you're the ones that are going to do most of this. Only 36%, about a third of people in low-income countries, have any kind of legislation, much less resources, to deal with mental health compared to high-income countries where it's 90%. Uh, outpatient mental health facilities, 58 times more prevalent in high-income compared with low-income countries, um, etc. I don't need to belabor it except that this is; these are the facts. Mental health problems can be fatal and not rarely are. Again, you don't normally think about depression and anxiety as fatal illnesses, but the fact is depression is a fatal illness a significant part of the time unless it's well managed. Um, Put that in your mind to think about as you're taking care of patients. Uh, In high-resource countries, For instance, in the U.S., they're estimated at 30,000 suicides annually and at least 10 incomplete suicides for each completed suicide. But according to good studies, the mortality database from WHO, the rate of suicide is rising in much of the world, and 73% of low- and middle-income countries don't even report it because they don't think about it as a significant health problem. One of the issues that I have with WHO is that it overlooks anxiety for some reason. This Mental Health Gap Intervention Guide, look at what the list is for. Depression, psychosis, bipolar, epilepsy, developmental, behavioral dementia, alcohol. Anxiety is not reported. Now maybe because the understanding is anxiety is going to be somatized. But As one of the more common problems out there, it's a problem that it's not addressed accurately. This is just one page from the Mental Health Gap Master Chart, which is the step-by-step approach that's out there for you and for anyone that you train and work with to work step-by-step with the major psychiatric disorders. However, as you know, there's a significant challenge for us in applying our concept of causes and management of depression and anxiety in non-Western cultures. Uh, The clue is to think about the whole person. We've been preaching biopsychosocial spiritual model for decades now. Uh, We don't consistently think that way yet. We still think reductionistically and uh, kind of mechanical causality. And the only way to really address this in a culture is going to be to think comprehensively. Part of it is that many cultures, many non-Western cultures, the cause of mental uh, distress is not considered to be the same things that we consider it to be. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a couple of minutes. Some other things that are important to think about in uh, non-Western cultures are that adherence to medication is Almost always a problem. You think how serious adherence to medication is a problem in your practice in the U.S. where people supposedly know. I rarely finish taking all of my medicine, much less, and I'm one of those people that's supposed to know how to. Um, In countries where it costs a lot, where it's inconvenient, um, adherence is really, really a problem. So you can't really rely on, I gave a prescription, and I'm pretty sure the person is going to take it and be better in two or three weeks. The good news is that psychological treatments for depression and anxiety in low- and middle-income countries work. They can be applied. You can learn how to apply them and teach them, and they work. So you don't have to rely on psychopharmacology as the only way to address this. Now, what's the major problem there? Time. How long does it take to write a fluoxetine prescription? How long does it take to drill down and do what you need to do if you're going to help somebody comprehensively manage their anxiety depression? So in my clinic of three hundred people a day, it wasn't going to happen. If you pull people aside and triage them and set aside time, you can make a difference. But it has to become a priority, and it's hard to make it a priority when you when it's not bleeding you know or seizing or with a high fever. But the evidence is if you're going to be evidence based in your thinking, evidence is you need to do it. So, clues about managing anxiety and depression anywhere. This is from my experience, and I'm going to have others who are experienced in the audience offer their ideas. Find out what the local syndromes are urban, suburban, bush. Find out the local attitudes toward mental health. Uh, If you speak a totally different language in your head, as well as verbally, you're not going to have a match and you're not going to be able to help much. Seek out local interest. It may surprise you. What I found out in Nigeria was that many nurses had a private practice off campus, and they were the ones that were actually pretty good at dealing with this. They took the time. They prescribed medicines but they would take the time to manage that in a busy hospital clinic, we didn't take the time. Find out what professional resources are available to you. Again, it may surprise you. Uh, There are people who are practicing good mental health care, not many, but a few in most places in the world. Now, it's maybe one person to a gazillion But if you find that person to link up with, to learn from, to refer to, to help train, you can make an impact that you're not going to make just one-on-one over time by yourself. Find out what's available from churches if you have churches. Uh, Churches in uh, low- and middle-income countries are starting to get it and are starting to realize that there is something in addition to praying harder and studying the Bible more that often needs to be done for significant depression and anxiety. And like I said earlier, read the peer review literature for your area. Again, it may surprise you because you haven't taken the time to do it. But in most countries, there will have been an academic center where somebody has done some research, particularly on these two disorders, and you can usually find helpful applications. Um, find out what the pharmacies have available. I remember... One of the things I learned pretty quickly in the outpatient clinic was to try to make a diagnosis for something we had in the pharmacy to treat. You know, it didn't help to diagnose liver cancer if we couldn't do anything about it, though sometimes we could send, we refer them away. But it would help to diagnose depression because there was something we could do about it. Uh, Find out what the pharmacies, not just your hospital pharmacy, but the pharmacies in the community. In fact, often the community pharmacies are much better supplied because they are. Be creative in pharmacotherapy. I'll talk a little bit about uh, some ideas of that in a minute. Recognize the financial and life pattern limitations of adherence over time. So don't get upset with people if they don't uh, follow through the way you want them to, but also don't give up on them. If you can find a partner in following up, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to follow up everyone you see. Find someone who perhaps can, a pastor, a nurse in practice in the community, uh, an elder in a church who has some gifts in support and counseling, a lot of options. And, and at least in Africa, taking advantage of the resilience of the family structure is important because if the family will grapple with this, there's a huge amount that can be done to support and get people through major anxiety and depression problems. And of course, as is in this country, support what works for the person in their real life. One of the most important questions to ask people struggling is, so how have you dealt with this kind of thing before? What's the best way you get through it? Not what, are, what is my prescription uh, first. So, widely available biological therapies for anxiety. Bloxetine almost everywhere. Bioavailability can be a problem depending on where the drug was manufactured. But if you get the same drug from the same pharmacy, I remember in West and East Africa, a lot of the drugs were manufactured in India, and the bioavailability was poor, so what do you do? You just keep increasing the dose until you get side effects, and then you know I'm getting there instead of being too worried about you know exactly knowing how much is in it. In fact, that's a good principle for psychopharmacology that we learned in the tricyclic era. If someone doesn't have unwanted effects, they probably aren't taking their medicine and probably aren't taking enough. And the unwanted effects are part of the bargain of getting wanted effects. Um, Benzodiazepines, again, in much of the world, benzos become an easily available sedative of choice, which basically cause brain numbing. Uh, It's good for acute panic, acute anxiety, but It has a long-term brain-numbing effect, uh, not exactly like marijuana, but sometimes it looks similar to chronic marijuana use. Uh, Surprisingly, the neuroleptics, those that are available almost anywhere, actually are helpful for anxiety. Again, some of you who are of my generation remember when Melaril was kind of a drug of choice for anxiety. Very effective work. There wasn't a huge amount of tardive that developed. In fact, it was not really common in the doses we used. So creative psychopharmacology. Um, And then beta blockers, Uh, they're best for target symptoms or performance uh, for adrenaline overload, but not necessarily for the primary anxiety. So biological therapies for depression, again, here's the list. The SS, SN, DN, whatever the RIs are that are coming out, learn to use them because they often are available. In the local pharmacies, learn to use tricyclics. One of the things that I try to do with our residents in psych is to almost force them to learn how to use tricyclics because, first of all, there are more and more people who can't afford our fancy drugs, even with the Walmart, you know, four dollar and ten dollar for one and and uh, and uh, three months prescriptions. Tricyclics are really, really, really cheap, and they're available, can be available in most places. Neuroleptics, learn to use them. Using lithium in an area where you can't get blood levels, in our evidence-based medicine, we think it's scary. In the real world, I remember using lithium, and if somebody starts, you kind of adjust the dose till they start to get a tremor or a little bit of GI upset, maybe you're getting there. If their mood disorder is better, You know we're reliant on laboratory, and laboratory runs the expense of medical care up. And in much of the world, it's not going to be affordable, or it's not the ideal. So learn, you know, you treat by wanted, unwanted effect balances much more than being tied to the, to what we rely on here. Believe it or not, light therapy is a very valid uh, issue, and and. 10:40 10:40 window, it may not be much of an issue, but more and more limited access countries aren't down there; they're up where there isn't enough light, and um, light therapy works. It's energizing; it helps uh, organize the circadian rhythm, and it's a relatively benign biological antidepressant. Uh, managing circadian rhythm and sleep is important. Some of you may remember studies done in the past of uh, Treating depression with REM sleep deprivation or sleep deprivation. Actually, you can get a remission for a major depression, a significant number of people, simply by sleep deprivation. Now, the trouble is, as soon as they start sleeping again, it comes back. But you can start to get a remission going and then maybe keep it going with another biological therapy. ECT, uh, I've taken ECT machines to Kenya and taught people how to use them, and I've heard stories about how it can be life-saving. Uh, it's something that you if you have that oh my gosh attitude about it, you need to learn more about it. It's actually safe, effective. Uh, you know that there's adherence to what you're doing. And surprisingly, often if you get a remission from ECT, it's, it's lasting to some degree. There still are relapses like there are in any mood disorders. But uh, learn how to use ECT. The most important thing in ECT is a good anesthesiologist. ECT is simple. A good, good anesthesia support for the respiration for five, seven minutes. If you can get that, you're good to go and you can do safe ECT. CBT works in most cultures. Again, most of you know the concept of CBT and I won't review that in detail here. But I thought I would... Uh, remind reminds you that many approaches for mood and anxiety problems uh, work in all of these disorders to some degree. Um, one of the things you may not know is that Burns' uh, Feeling Good the New Mood Therapy has been translated into now more and more and more languages. It's applied in more and more and more languages. If you just go on his website and go to you can find out. These are the languages, these are the countries in which it's being used in the local language at this point. And uh, I know Larry G, who came to our conferences in Asia, uh, went back to uh, you know, East Asia, and, and used this kind of approach very effectively. Learn and apply self-help material. Again, they can't afford people like me. They probably can't even afford people like you. So if you learn what's good self-help material, translate and interpret into the host culture. I suggest you carefully screen written by Christians for Christians because often that doesn't translate well into host culture application. Uh, Find professionals in your host country to whom you can refer or help train you and your learners. And then care. People can tell if you care. And that goes a long way. Uh, Just that experience of caring, being cared for, goes a long way in the beginning of somebody coming to terms with anxiety and depression. Other psychosocial therapies that work, just listening by gifted listeners, counseling, normalizing situational anxiety, for instance, uh, support, The usual coping mechanisms, like I said, prayer, exercise, faith, community, family, system, work, school, preferably not alcohol and marijuana. Activation, getting somebody on a schedule, surprisingly, will improve their ability to function if they just do it, whether they feel like it or not. Um, Dynamic interpersonal therapy works. Um, There's more and more research that it works. You don't have to lie on the couch to do good dynamic interpersonal therapy. You can actually do it in a short time if you have a relationship with the patient. And you can learn to do it. It's not rocket science. Group therapies are very effective and cost effective. And one one somewhat controversial thing that I think is important is to collaborate with local healers as much as you can. If all you're doing is fighting with the local healers, your patients aren't going to get most of what they need. And some cultures of local healers have very, very effective approaches to these things. And learning to collaborate rather than fight is usually going to be important in helping your patients the most. In much of the world, uh, the evidence of and belief in spirits and demon possession is strong. And if we go and don't pay attention to that or try to integrate into our thinking, we're going to get lost and we're going to lose a lot of people. Um, much of the world, prayer is a very powerful tool of healing. In the West, we've kind of lost some of that. But if you I see some nods from some other gray hairs here, um, elders and wise people are great sources of strength to individuals in distress. Uh, the opposite of our culture, in most cultures, the older you get, the more respect you get, um, and that you can utilize that to the benefit of your patients. Again, all you need to know is on those resources, the references. You don't really need to know a lot except the two, the World Health Organization, and like I said, if you want the curriculum, Virginia Commonwealth University. All right, as I promised, we're going to stop and have time for questions and input. And I see a lot of people here who I know have dealt with this over time, so please pitch in. I'll try to repeat things for the recording. Yes, ma'am. Not used it. I'm aware of it. Um, no. The question was about EMDR. Can you tell us, describe EMDR briefly? Okay,
1: it's an eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, but it's, uh, they might change it to bilateral stimulation, where you where um, you allow the patient to, or the client to feel the negative. It opens up the channel to a more adaptive, positive way of seeing the situation and experiencing it. So, right to left where you tap, either tap or eye movement to make, to stimulate both sides of the brain, whatever it is, the bilateral stimulation. It began in the 80s, so they're doing more and more research on why it works. I think it's related to the God-given thing that when we carry a baby, we rock them right to left and we go for a walk walk right to left, you know, things like that. So it'll desensitize the negative maladaptive stores and memory and plug
0: it into the positive more adaptive stores. Thank you. Um, I won't repeat all of that for the recording. <laughs> but I can tell you that this is a very common practice in the community. It's very strongly adhered to. My opinion is that I'm still skeptical in terms of the research, but Again, I, it certainly doesn't hurt people, and a lot of people—you have a lot of anecdotal report, and more research is trying to figure it out at this It'll point. do no harm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's usually—it uh, it reminds me of cognitive behavioral, where you do the right to left uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stimulation of yeah. for PTSD, mm-hmm. depression, those kind of things. Serious? Yes, somebody had a yes from the Virginia Commonwealth
1: University website for different step-by-step treatment of uh, mental illness. In a busy family practice clinic where you don't have a lot of time with a patient, is there a good online resource for the step-by-step that you can do quickly with a patient and take good care of them?
0: Not being a primary care doc, I'm not sure I can help you. Other primary care docs, the question was, is there a good online readily accessible step-by-step step. when you're sitting with a patient. You can look something up quickly. you have an idea or a different question? Anybody have a an offering? Because I don't have...
1: And the One thing I'll say, I don't know so much about the specific answer to the question, but one thing I found to be very effective is two things. One, if I take 10 extra minutes, it's amazing how powerful that is.
0: Yeah. So taking extra time...
1: You think it's taking forever, but actually it's a relatively small amount of additional time. It can make a huge difference
0: for some. Especially if you're sitting down.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. And then number two is just telling the patient the plan is to space this out over several visits in relatively close proximity is very effective as well. If they know that hope is on the horizon, they're willing to come back more
0: frequently to get more time in that way. So engaging the person Letting them know this isn't all they get, that you'll be with them and you'll bring them back. It can be a powerful tool in time limited uh areas. Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. What do you say in a s a second world, more of a
1: second world saying, what do you say these people are bring all kinds of models to bite them firms and spending a lot of money on that kind
0: of In this world? The one the world North America? I don't know about there. I know it's huge where we live. And it's it's a very common, you know, I kind of get, I like to tease my patients if I get to know them. I say, so why don't you add up how much you've spent on that in the last month and bring it to me next time and tell me exactly how much you've spent. And if they do, they're horrified. They complain about, you know, $50 for my medicines. Um, they're they're actually, Again, there's, there's more and more good research that will help us know when to support and when to be agnostic or negative about those kinds of practices. Many, you know, the NIMH has a big movement on complementary alternative medicines, which I think is going to help us find where they fit in, where we can collaborate, where they can help. Uh, But, the, you know, the evidence for megavitamins simply isn't there. But, you know, I, I'm amazed that I've got one patient who just goes from one company to another, to another. And um, anyway, good point. Yes, sir. Will you comment on PTSD and a few ways you approach that. Uh, comment on PTSD and a few approaches. Well, in some people's practice EMDR is a particular important way. Um, probably. A more important question to address, and this is something that will take a while, so we won't go into it in depth now, is what to do acutely with trauma. Um, The evidence is mounting that the wrong thing to do when there's a major traumatic event is to bring a bunch of us types in there and make people talk about it. The critical incident debriefing evidence is getting thinner and thinner. In fact, there's more evidence now that it may do more harm than good. To force somebody to re-experience the horror before they're able to manage it simply ingrains it more deeply. So look at the literature on critical incident debriefing and be very careful about what you support. Now, once someone has developed ongoing post-traumatic stress disorder, then there's treatment. You, there, there's psychotherapeutic treatment there's treating specific symptoms sleep symptoms can be effectively treated and a good night's sleep is huge in terms of how people cope with the day um, again CBT is one of the best studied evidences for managing that pharmacotherapy is helpful the, the place we're going to really know a lot about a lot more about this in five years because the military has a rapid response development of because of the huge number of people they're having to deal with, so we're going to learn a lot more quickly. Yes, ma'am, you were trying to. Did you say that in some countries that nurses, coming uh, with psychiatric backgrounds, uh, diagnose? Yeah. Well, actually, in, in many countries, nurses just have their own private practice. I don't know if it's legal or not. Did you say nurse practitioners. No. Well, LPNs, RNs. You so? I mean, if. If if I'm in a city of uh, half a million people, there are not enough family medicine docs, there are not enough other people, uh, many nurses who work in the hospital will also have a big private practice. And, you know, it's maybe below the radar, but instead of being upset about that, what I decide to do is say, okay, how can we work together here? It's going to happen. How are we going to work together? Yes, sir? Uh, One thing I found
1: very helpful, but I was in a hospital which had chaplains, is having the chaplains come, they understood culture very quickly. A quick example would be a a lady who was, looked just to be a postpartum depression, but uh, my wife who's a social worker, came along and she got the chaplain, and they quickly realized something that I missed, that the woman had been rejected by her husband's family. I thought seeing family there meant that was a good thing and support but it was her family, and in that culture, his family should have been there. So they can cut hours out of yeah.
0: trying to figure something out. Now, that collaboration is critical, a collaboration with someone who knows chaplains, other practitioners, uh, pastors. In some communities, pastors will develop a skill and be able to do it in a very helpful ways. Yes, ma'am. Well, the question is, how do you keep your spiritual hat on as well as your medical? Um, I guess the first thing is never to take it off. Mm-hmm. But there are certain contexts in which I'm permitted and not permitted to do that. Uh, at least where I practice, it's a secular institution. And the boundaries, particular for a mental health person, are, have to be very carefully managed. Because of the power differential, the influence differential. Uh, happens where I practice. The majority of people are uh, Lutherans or Roman Catholics. Most of them have had God in their lives in some way. And so prayer is a natural thing for them. And if they bring it up, we do it. Um, people that I get to know well Obviously, that's a whole sphere of life that if you ignore, you're ignoring a major part of who they are. And so I don't have any compunction about asking... You know, My lead question in an interview is, how are you and God getting along? And this going from there and seeing what they want to do. Now, sometimes I may be a resource for them, but sometimes the resource may not be me. It may be their pastor. It may be a chaplain. But... Um, Again, I think you have to figure out for yourself where you practice how you're going to manage never taking the hat off but also knowing when it's appropriate to bring it into the relationship. Yes, sir.
1: Have you been able in your study or in your practice find a link or see any kind of relationship whatsoever between schizophrenia and demonic possession or oppression?
0: question is uh, relationship between schizophrenia and demonic possession. And My opinion is no. My opinion is that uh, possession can um, mimic, but in, in this country, I don't see much of it. When I started practice, the pastors in the area would refer me a lot of people who they said were possessed, and most of them had schizophrenia and not possession. So, But in In Nigeria, um, it's not as easy. Though the symptom, if you really are careful in using diagnostic approaches to schizophrenia, it's fairly clear, especially with the, quote, negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Those are, you know, psychosis can be caused by most everything that happens to somebody's brain and body. But the negative symptoms of schizophrenia are the ones that are most specific, I think, to differentiating from other kinds of issues. Yes, ma'am. Um, in your experience
1: with, with the patients that come to you, what's their reaction when they come to you with stomach aches or physical pain, and you tell them, you know, we're looking into it being depression or anxiety or schizophrenia? Is that an accepted thing in their culture? Or is it more demeaning
0: in their culture? So the question is, how do you move from someone presenting with a somatic symptom into working with the emotional, mental side of things? It's not just those cultures. I mean, you know, Mayo Clinic is a a mecca for those people. And fairly often, psychiatry, we're sort of at the end of the chain of consultations. And so it's a very common thing to do. And my, my approach is very individualized, obviously, but most of what I will do will be to sit down and say, so tell me what you understand about what's been found about your illness so far. And then I'll say, so those ignoramuses can't figure it out. No, I won't really say that. <laughs> but I'll say, that's the state of modern medicine. We can't explain everything and we can't test and find everything That doesn't mean you're not experiencing it. Uh, Actually, psychiatry has a long history of being dumped patients that were, quote, functional, that turned out not to be. And I don't go down that path very often. I simply say, so now here we are. What can we do with how you cope with this? What can we do with how much this is causing trouble in your life? Uh, Has it made you really sad and down and depressed at times? And people will say, well, yeah. So then you kind of have an avenue. Um, so, but it's a, you know, it's a negotiation, face-saving negotiation, and moving into an area in which uh, people have to learn to trust you enough to say, okay, this guy's not going to say it's all in my head and that I'm crazy, and he's going to really listen to me and really pay attention, and we're going to try to figure out something we can do that helps. That's clinical medicine. Time's up. We've got to stop. Thank you very much.